Hey everyone, this is James Mackey and welcome to the Breakthrough Hiring Show. Join us as we cover high-level thought leadership and step-by-step guides on how to make people a competitive advantage for your organization. I'm incredibly proud to be the CEO of Secure Vision, the sponsor of this show and the number one contract recruiting, embedded recruiting, and RPO firm. A thank you to our partners, Greenhouse, the hiring operating system for people-first companies, and Gem, the all-in-one hiring solution recruiters love. Let's go! Hello, welcome to Talent Acquisition Trends and Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, James Mackey. Thank you for joining us today. I think we have a pretty damn exciting episode. I'm going to be sharing with you a lot of my thoughts and philosophies surrounding talent acquisition. Over the past eight years, I've worked with over 150 startups, growth stage companies, uh, and even a handful of publicly traded organizations to not only help them hire and fill roles spanning across revenue and engineering and everything in between, but also to guide talent strategy. I've advised multiple companies and prior to starting my embedded recruiting business uh, and actually throughout the duration and the early days before we started to scale, I also built myself out as essentially an internal resource and led internal talent acquisition departments and even a role as a chief people officer. So uh, I'm going to be sharing a lot of the insights. I, I, you know, one of the things too that I'm, I do a lot of is I probably on an annual basis, I'm speaking with hundreds of founder CEOs and talent acquisition executives. So I'm going to be sharing with you some of the top takeaways that I've, I've gathered over the past eight years running my company and working with so many incredible leaders to help guide their talent strategy. So I hope this helps. And if you have any questions, follow-ups, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn, or you can go to talenttrends.io and uh, put in questions or, or whatever you may have. If there's any topics you want us to discuss in the show, uh, definitely let us know. We're, we're always looking for ways to switch it up. This format's going to be a little different. We have some really exciting new segments that are going to be coming out here, some new guests that are going to be coming on a recurring basis to run segments alongside me. So there's a lot of cool things we're doing. Right now, we're growing the audience 30% month over month. So we want to keep that trend going and continue to add more value to more folks. And uh, I appreciate your your contribution. If you have any ideas or if you want to be a guest, we're, we're really looking forward to hearing from you. So let's, let's go ahead and jump into it. I'm going to share with you a lot of the common mistakes that I've seen incredibly bright founder CEOs make when it comes to uh, building a recruitment and talent acquisition strategy and I, I see a lot of these mistakes too in, in earlier stage companies and, and even fast growing growth stage companies. So uh, let's let's dive into it. I, I would say one of the, one of the biggest and what becomes one of the most obvious problems is a lot of founder CEOs, executive teams, hiring managers, and talent acquisition departments have a hard time articulating their vision and creating a compelling data back story, and they don't necessarily understand how to pitch the future that they believe in. So what's the future that the founding team believes in? And why is that founding team and that product well-positioned to thrive in that future? And why does that matter? Is it changing the world? And if not, that you know, not everybody's in a business that has potential to change the world, and that's okay. You know, if, if it's a if it's a scheduling app. You don't have to pretend that it's it's going to change the world, right? In a in a truly impactful way, besides optimizing a a process. In that case, you you can focus more on culture, right? And and what really differentiates you from a, a culture perspective. But I think that a lot of the times, founder CEOs can focus a little too much on the tactics of why the role is open and maybe what's exciting about the role. But the reality is that 
many times the role in and of itself isn't going to be very different than what every other company is offering. So if there isn't a compelling story as to why the company is well positioned to thrive in the future that they believe in and why that future actually matters, why people should give a shit, then it's going to be hard to attract the best folks that are being approached by recruiters every day, as as we all know, right? Another big mistake I see a lot of founder CEOs make, and it's something that I think town acquisition leaders need to articulate to executive leadership, uh, the founding leadership is what I mean, is that recruiting for your startup or growth stage company is not going to be as easy or straightforward as recruiting for Fang. So there's been several occasions over the past eight years where we have a client who they're like, you know, ex Google or ex Netflix, right? And they go to start their own company and they basically make the assumption like, well, when I was at Netflix, like it was, we had people knocking at the door to come work here. And for some reason, some, some leaders have the expectation that that is going to translate uh, at their startup. But the reality is like the startup has no brand. And it's also an incredibly big risk. Now, of course, we're seeing a lot of uh, layoffs in big tech, but nonetheless, like if it's an unknown startup with no brand, really the proof of showing legitimacy uh, falls on the founder, right? You can't assume that candidates are just going to trust a 30-minute conversation uh, to, when you're giving an overview of the company that this is going to be the, the right move. Um, you need to get a little bit more in-depth there, and it's not going to be as easy. It's going to be a lot harder and so you really have to have every part of the process ironed out very clearly so that it can give candidates the confidence that they need to move forward with you. It's going to be harder. Your time to fill is going to be longer. Your cost per hire, not necessarily going to be more, right? Because bigger companies have more overhead, but nonetheless, it's it's going to be hard. Another mistake I, I see companies make is they if they're going through some type of transition, if they're growing very fast, Maybe they have ambiguity when it comes to benefits package or what that's going to look like in the next 12 months. They don't have clearly defined quotas or they're in the process of redoing that OTE. Um, you know, th there's there's just things when it comes to when you're when you're scaling rapidly as a startup or growth stage company, you need to be able to show with clarity detail for everything surrounding the employment package and performance expectations. And even if you're in a position where that might be changing rapidly, it's better to have a plan in place and to say in six months it might change than to not bring that plan to the candidate and say it's it's um, essentially a moving target. We're working on it. It's it's always better to have a plan and change it and, of course, to articulate that in the interview process so candidates don't feel like they're being blindsided by a change six months from now, right? So I think just reiterating to folks that things are going to change. This is a startup or a growth stage organization. We're going to have to evolve quickly. And so there's a good chance some of the stuff that we're covering right now is going to evolve over the next three, six, 12 months, right? I also see a lot of companies in tech, startup growth stage, rely heavily on contingent recruiting agencies, but without having the right checks and balances in place, the right interview process in place, to ensure that only the best folks get hired. And you have to remember that contingent recruiters are incentivized by large commissions and they are in a sales role, recruiting and for a contingent agency, it's sales. And so their job and their skill set actually is not so much focused on vetting talent as it is objection handling and pushing candidates through the process. So this is why, if you've ever worked with a contingent agency recruiter that sent a candidate to you that wasn't the right fit and you knew it wasn't the right fit, 
but they're, they're pushing back on you and trying to do the whole objection handling thing. And then that gets like super annoying, right? The reason that that happens is because they are in a aggressive quota environment and they're trying to push through talent. So I'm not saying that there aren't exceptional contingent recruiters. I, I know there are. All I'm saying is that if you don't have the right processes built out, you're very likely to uh, at least get some folks through that really are not the right fit for your company. So you have to be aware of that. And you only engage contingent recruiters when you have a strong internal process in place. It doesn't mean you have to have a big internal talent acquisition team. It just means that you have to make sure that you have the ability to vet out folks that might be pushed on you by that contingent recruiter. I also see a lack of clear role descriptions. Companies often don't do a good job prioritizing the outcomes that really have to be produced in the role, and they put down a lot of tasks and whatnot. And the reality is that a lot of the tasks in the day-to-day is going to shift over time, but likely the top one to three outcomes of the role aren't. So there should be a greater emphasis on honing in on what the outcomes are that need to be produced in the role and clear performance expectations. And again, performance might shift over a period of six months to a year, but that needs to be clearly articulated. And so one of the things that I don't see is when it comes to role descriptions and and understanding the performance metrics and, and even onboarding, right? All of that stuff like should be planned out prior to an opening going live, right? Being posted and people recruiting for it. So one of the things when I was a chief people officer for a growth stage SaaS company, what I did was we set up greenhouse in such a way that there was an approval process. And for a role to get approved to be open and to be made a priority so the recruiting team actually worked on it, they had to provide very clear role descriptions that was outcome focused, right? Not like task oriented. They had to have clear performance metrics put in place to understand like what success looks like. Right. And they also had to have the onboarding process clearly mapped out. So this is the path to success to get this person hired. And if they didn't have those things, the job wasn't going live. From a culture perspective, sometimes hiring managers don't like that stuff. But the reality is that payroll is usually the, the biggest expense within organizations and hiring the right people are critical and not over hiring is critical as we are seeing in this market. And so if a hiring manager is truly competent and to be truly aligned with the executive team, they got to get their ducks in a row and do this stuff. And if they're not willing to do that, or if they're you know, not open to doing that, then they're probably not the right person, right? Another huge mistake I see is companies, this is more in the early stage, right? So I'm talking like seed series A, maybe series B. They're giving unqualified candidates VP titles to entice them to join their team. So they might take a high-level individual contributor, or somebody in a manager job and say, hey, we want you to come be our VP of sales or VP of engineering or whatever else, right? And this is bad. This is it. And, and the reason being is that making the leap from director to VP is, is it's a big leap. And sometimes it, you know, folks don't do it and for whatever reason. And so the skill set required to build process from the ground up and understand the nuance and understand be more analytical and being able to work in spreadsheets and tying to business outcomes and building repeatable process and just the strategic thinking and everything that goes into being a good executive is is really important. I think sometimes we we give smart folks the benefit of the doubt, which you know I, I get it. Everybody has to have their first VP role, but they need to show that they have the VP skill set already versus they're going to grow into the VP skill set on the job, which is usually a lot less effective. So if they're a go getter. Uh, and and very dedicated to their career, then they're going to be the type of folks that surround themselves with mentors and advisors and 
are going the extra mile on their job to develop the skill set before they move into the role. And that's the type of person you want in there. The reality too is like, even if the person is does all right, like you're going to have to replace them. If they're not qualified as you grow, you're just going to have to cut them and get somebody else anyway. And it's actually bad for them too. Most people, they get blinders on when they see a big salary or, you know, the VP title, they want it. And I get that. But if you hire somebody that's unqualified for that, and then you have to cut them in six months because they're not qualified, they're going to have a really hard time fighting another VP role. And it could kind of mess up the progression of their career. So it's it's not good for you as an employer, whether you're, you know, whatever perspective, whatever role you're in, whether you're a VP of talent acquisition or the CEO, you should be trying to build a culture that doesn't try to entice folks uh, by title because, you know, you get it. A VP that's not really a VP, then you need somebody better. It's like you got to let that person go or change their title, or it, there's just no good option at that point. So I, this is, and honestly, this is a lesson that a lot of uh, a lot of companies learn the hard way. So try not to do that. This is another one. I think that a lot of companies do put too much emphasis on personality tests. I'm just not big on that. I'm really not. I, and I know different environments are. You know, there's there's different environments out there, and if it works for you, I get it. I just think that. There's several problems. Like a, a lot of companies put it too early in the process where they don't have engagement from the candidates and then they're asking them to do this extra stuff. And that's that's bad. That's a bad experience. And if you put it further down funnel, it's you know, the idea of personality is so subjective too, right? I, I have top performers that have drastically different personalities, right? I think the one common thread is that they're go-getters. They're, you know, they have a certain level of like confidence and belief in themselves and they're competent and they're able to focus and they have the ability to you know, switch from one task to another without getting too distracted. Like there's a certain level of like energy and intensity that they bring to the table. But again, like from other than, other than that, like there's so many different personalities out there and there's some of the best salespeople I know are like introverts, right? Like I'm actually, I consider myself an introvert and I've sold to over 150 companies, right? Like I just, I just think that it's just not that important. I think understand like alignment on values is there. And I think these tests might get into that too. But I think that there's a lot more that can be uncovered in an interview process and having a natural dialogue versus giving somebody a test. I just don't think that that should be something that's betting people in or out as being a good fit. I see early stage companies making the mistake of only hiring one sales rep. So when they when they start to expand a sales team, they only hire one person instead of three. And as a result, they have no way to benchmark the success and actually know if the person's doing well. Like, is it the product? Is it the rep? Like, what's going on? And so if you hire three, you know, maybe one of them will be great. One of them will be okay. And one of them will be bad. I mean, you know, who knows, right? But like, the idea is that you have multiple reps in place that can benchmark. So ideally, it's like you hire the sales team when you have the budget to hire for multiple reps so that you can truly do that benchmarking. And and this one, guys, this is actually coming. That point is from Scott Lee. So that's I learned that through Scott Lee, who's a, a sales advisor for several startup and growth stage companies, and that that just stuck with me as a lesson learned and something that I'm implementing at my own company. So something to keep in mind. Another huge mistake that companies make, and this is startup growth stage, pretty much every size, is if they're an international company and they're expanding into the new uh, U.S. market, uh, they they underestimate the nuance that goes into being successful in North America. Not only from like, I mean, everything, right? Like talent acquisition to sales, everything. And when it specifically ties to talent acquisition, they they essentially try to do a copy paste of what worked in Europe or or wherever they might be based out of. And so I think, you know, they they don't necessarily understand that 
what worked in Europe is not necessarily going to work here. Sometimes they don't put enough attention to details around uh, getting benefits packages set up, or they end up having leaders that have never worked in the U.S. market and are managing like remotely, which doesn't work. So just just understanding that when you open an office in a different continent, you really do have to build from the gr- the ground up. You're not. This isn't just like an extension of your team and and where you know wherever your headquarter is it's it's basically building you have to see it as essentially a new entity and you need new process playbooks and you need probably a slightly different strategy it could align to north star metrics of the overall company but the tactics and strategies to get there are going to be different and i see a lot of companies uh, mess that up segment two i i think there is a lack of understanding for talent acquisition leaders, chief people officers, and founder CEOs on high-level recruitment lifecycle, which if you're going to hit your hiring plans consistently, which most companies don't in an upmarket, right, in a growth market, uh, you need to, to understand this so you can get ahead of it. And this, a lot of us in talent acquisition, like we're constantly trying to preach, right? Like you need a proactive recruitment strategy, not reactive. And if you're proactive, you can achieve better outcomes. But this gets into this understanding the life cycle helps you really dive into this and understand like, well, why why is that the case? Why is talent acquisition not a transactional light uh, switch that can just be flipped on whenever needed? So here are the stages of the life cycle. So in down markets, companies cut recruitment agencies and products first. They're trying to preserve their in-house staff. They don't want to go through layoffs. That's, you know, from a culture perspective, that's hard to bounce back from. Uh, and, and so they 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 start with the agencies, right? Any kind of variable cost, whether it's it's product or agency, goes first. Step two is then they cut internal recruiters, right? Shortly after. Uh, step three, there's uh, they've had to do layoffs and cuts. Uh, also, there is some natural attrition. Attrition usually slows down a little bit in a down market, right? If people feel like they have job security, they're going to stay, uh, or they might be less uh, trusting of other companies that are trying to recruit them. But nonetheless, like some strategic and backfill hiring begins, uh, you know, it's it's this is uh, essentially where we are now, right? Like companies are hiring, things are moving. Hopefully, things are are stabilizing a little bit, but we'll have to see. But anyway, so stage, you know, essentially the third stage is uh, after they cut in the house recruiters, hiring occurs, and usually a little bit more than they realize because they don't take into consideration attrition rates and stuff like that. Uh, step four is a market rebound. So pent up demand requires high volume hiring, right? So we've we've made the, the the internal cuts, the layoffs, and now folks need to hire in high volume. But of course, they've cut their internal talent acquisition team, and they're recruiting products. And so, step five is they end up trying to hire recruiters when everybody else is, and even if they are able to get a recruiter. They didn't emphasize building out process and technology proactively so that they can plug in a great recruiter and immediately start to generate results. Because since they didn't do process, basically when they're starting, they have to start from scratch and rebuild the entire town acquisition function. This is also when you start to see recruiter pay jump like we saw in 2021, where it was just like an insane growth rate, right? Ultimately, companies can't hire enough internal recruiters fast enough. Then they struggle with a lack of structure and strategy. They feel pain from the reactive approach to hiring, and they start to sign up the recruiting vendors. And all that money that they were trying to save during the cuts, they end up spending 10x more because they're paying 30 grand plus for contingent agency recruiters. A lot of them aren't familiar with 
other business models like embedded recruiting that are a lot more cost effective and better quality, quite honestly. So that's what happens next. And then as a result of not being able to hire fast enough, they also, that's when experimentation starts. They usually have a bigger budget at this point in time. Things are going well. They have to hire to hit uh, growth metrics and outcomes at the VCs and uh, that everybody wants to hit. And so they, they start with new products and they're looking at different things. They're ultimately usually disappointed by recruiting products because at the end of the day, at least at this point in time, uh, recruiting is a, it's a service. It's a, it's, it's driven by real people. And of course tech can optimize, but tech hasn't been able to replace recruiters uh, at this point in time. And so they, you know, ultimately will churn most of the products that they establish. And then the cycle continues, right. And a down market companies cut recruiting agencies and products. And we start to see that that cyclical nature. So I, I think just understanding that will help folks understand like, well, and this is like what I just posted on a previous podcast. It's like you know, hiring may be cyclical, but investing in process and technology isn't right. And trying to proactively invest and at a minimum, keep a bare bones structure in place so that you can hire the best folks when you need to hire them without losing too much ground. Because if you can't hire as we know, and again, I'm just giving you all word tracks to how you communicate with other members of your leadership team, right? And you may have your own, but hopefully this this helps. It's it's you know if you can't hire the people you need to hire when you need to hire them, like you're probably not going to hit your north star metrics as a company, right? You're less likely to. Another big tip that I like to share with founder CEOs is and talent acquisition leaders is that you want to recruit people that have experience with around seventy percent of the role description, job description. The reality is I don't, I don't believe it's been my experience working over that last eight years with so many folks and doing thousands of hires and whatnot. A players do not accept jobs that they've done hundred percent of. They're ambitious. They want to move up the 30%. You hire them for the 70% they've done. They accept your offer for the 30% they haven't. So you got to keep that in mind. Like, what are you giving them to entice? And I feel like this is the balancing act with the whole thing I was saying about giving people VP titles that they're not ready for. That's not what I'm referring to. I'm not saying put somebody in a position they're not qualified for, but you have to know the primary drivers of success. And if the person has like a strong enough foundation in that, but you got to make sure that they have a room to grow nonetheless. So um, I think that holds true. Again, I, I think I, I want to dial into the risks of working with contingent agency recruiters and how to make those relationships successful. I was able to set up internal process and tech in such a way where I had a very successful relationship with several firms, but a lot of companies get this wrong. And so here, here are some of the risks that you have to look out for and why it's so important uh, and to, to have the right process and tech in place before engaging with contingent recruiters. And if, if you already are engaging with them, you need to, to think about these things in your process. And this is why it should be a priority. That's what we're, we're going to cover now, why, why it's so important. Most recruiters that have a lot of experience are not going to go work for a low base salary. And the reality is like in the contingent business model, because it's contingent revenue, it's not recurring. These contingent firms can only pay. The only way to sustain that business model is by paying typically recruiters a low base salary. Now, there are folks out there that are okay, recruiters out there that are okay with that. And they're willing to take a low base salary because they have large commissions. But most people, when you have 10 plus years of experience, you have obligations in your life, you have the mortgage, you have kids, whatever else. 
uh, you're going to want to be, you're going to want to have predictability into your income. And so it's just something to think about. I'm not saying that there aren't cases where you have contingent recruiters that are outstanding, but most contingent recruiters are out of college, right? Like they're, they're pretty fresh, like they're pretty junior and they're not experts. Like they're just not, they're, they're young and hungry salespeople that are trying to make more money than they would make if they went into like HR, or like a different you know line of work. It's, it's why people go into sales, right? So anyways, that's, that's one, one thing to think about. I also believe that a second point is that large commissions actually create a conflict of interest. It's a shitty business model in my mind. Like the reason being is that your recruiters are quota carrying folks that are going to earn a large commission. So like if they notice a yellow flag or a red flag, they have an incentive to not tell you. And again, you could say like, well, no, they want to retain our business. It's like, yeah, but they want to hit their quota this month and they want the money now too. And so it's, I'm not saying that like a lot of contingent recruiters do that, but like, look, I've been on agency side for 10 years. I'll tell you, it does happen a lot. So it's just something to keep in mind. And honestly, like maybe they even like think that the candidate's good sometimes, but the reality is they don't have any in-house experience. I mean, all they, they're, they're taking what you're giving them and they're, they're finding profiles that fit, but people are really good at like connecting the dots, like hindsight fallacy and so fallacy. So they're just looking at, okay, to connect the dots on this, like this person meets the criteria. This is great. And that's why you hear recruiters. Like I got them everything that they needed. Like why? Did, well, did you, I mean, you checked boxes, you checked like five boxes and you submitted the candidate and it's like the, be, apparently like the best person you've ever worked with. It's like, come on, uh, probably not. So if you've ever felt like contingent agency recruiters are constantly selling to you, and pushing back, it's because they are, they're salespeople. So just understand that. Again, it's not that there's not great contingent recruiters. Like I know some incredible ones, right? And I, th- I think that there's a place. You just have to be careful. This is quite honestly why I do prefer the embedded recruiting model because it's incentive for short-term outcomes because if you don't produce short-term outcomes, the contact's going to churn. But the way that the revenue model works is that if you don't retain the customer for a long period of time, you're not really getting the lifetime value to uh, client acquisition cost ratio that you need to have a sustainable business that you can scale. And so by going that path, you could get typically better outcomes. And it's more of a true partnership, right? That's that's it's short-term results, but long-term value creation, which like any investor is going to say, the ultimate goal is to increase the valuation. And so that concept of value creation should be at the core of any business relationship. The other thing within an embedded recruiting model as an, as opposed to contingent would just be because it's in a uh, recurring revenue business model, embedded recruiters can be paid much higher salaries. So you're able to get folks that have more experience typically than you can get on the contingent side, right? So somebody that's been around for 10 plus years, they're going to want to make more than, you know, probably over uh, around a hundred thousand, if not more. And so you want to have a, a partner that's able to employ the best folks. The last point I'll make is a lot of companies struggle with the transition from hiring through their networks at an early stage to having a scalable talent acquisition process. So the analogy I could use is like maybe for a VC-backed product company, the first few customers come from like the VCs and, and warm introductions and the founders' relationships. But there comes a point in time where that's not enough and you have to build a robust revenue engine. You know, I consider... A company has two big demand gen funnels, one for customers, one for to, for employees. And you need to optimize both of those funnels in order to scale effectively. And so I think a lot of folks, the, the level of sophistication and 
awareness when it comes to what's required on a revenue side of the house is, is there at this point. I don't think it was there 10 years ago. I think we've seen a huge evolution in SaaS uh, in terms of awareness and understanding how to scale revenue orgs overall. But we're not seeing that on the talent acquisition side. We're just not seeing the same level of strategic mindset when it comes to process and tech optimization. And I think that we we need to see a lot more of that. So to make sure that you can make that transition effectively from more so referral network-based into a scalable town acquisition program is you have to start building out process and technology earlier than you think you do. So sometimes I'll speak with founder CEOs that are around like 20, 30 employees, and they really starting to have the need for an ATS. And it's like, well, look, honestly, 15 employees is probably the right time to buy a product like Greenhouse. Because if you could, you don't, and if you have the right partner and advisor, honestly, you can, for your, your needs at that stage, you could probably implement greenhouse over a few hours. Like it's just not that hard if you have people that, you, you know, know how to do it. So I don't recommend if a company doesn't know how to implement it to just do it on their own. And I would just say, find an experienced you know, person that's done it and, and they can knock it out in a couple hours. I'm sure a lot of people tuning in would be able to knock it out in a couple hours. So doing that like sooner rather than later is, is just a mistake I see a lot of companies make. So they get to 20, 30 employees, they raise another round or they're, you know, they land a couple large customers, things are working, and then they're scrambling, right? And they don't have any organization in place. And there's this huge kind of productivity, productivity gap that occurs uh, and a lot of missed opportunities because they're not ready to go. It's it's in like, you know, again, on the revenue side, like when you're starting out, you still want your Salesforce stack, sales loft or outreach or whatever else it is. Maybe you want Gong, uh, you want different data tools, maybe like a Zoom info or whatever it might be. You want to have those things in place. So not only like even at an early stage that sales rep can be as successful as possible, but when you go from one rep or two reps or three reps to 10 reps to 20 reps, you want to have that process in place ahead of time, like hiring you know, it, building process and tech should always come before hiring in every sense of that term. You could apply that in, in so many different ways, but it's just something that's uh, really important. I also think you have to understand the channels that are scalable. And so you need to understand your basically candidate source to higher ratios and really understand if they make sense. Like, so for instance, if you're investing a lot in Indeed and it takes a ton of time for recruiters to go through that, and it's only accounting for like, 5% or like 3% of hires, but it's accounting for 15% of budget, right? You have to understand that and you have to factor in the recruiter's time and know like, okay, these are very low converting channels and they're wasting a ton of resources, which one with time and money, right? They're essentially the same, in many ways, the same thing, but they're wasting all that. And if we had just, if we just doubled down on the channels that are working really well with the best converting rates that are efficient, right? That we can actually scale. Not only will we get better results now, but we won't end up, you know, when we go from 50 to 200 people, we're not going to have these channels that are just really slowing us down and preventing us from putting all of our resources into what we know works. So, and every industry is going to be different, but you want to start to think about like, should we have a max cost per hire when we look at it? And should we, you know, how much the different channels and, and what if we have a channel that's a, a, a only giving us 5% of hires? Do we need it? Should we just, okay, if this is accounting for 30% of hires, what if we just put cut the five, the one that does 5% and go all in on the one that's 30? You don't need to have 10 candidate sources that are all effective. You need a couple of channels that are going to work really well. And that's really all that you need. 
to be successful. Maybe a few. I'm not saying, I mean, I'm just saying you can do a lot with fewer things, particularly if you're honing in on what you know works for your business. You're typically going to have more success there, there than just constantly experimenting with new channels. That's many times not the right strategy. So I feel like I could keep going for hours, guys. This has been a lot of fun. I, I think this is a good stoppy point. I'm really excited to get your feedback. So again, follow me on LinkedIn, reach out talenttrends.io. I appreciate your support and you listening to the show consistently. It's been so cool to see the evolution of the show and the success that we're having. I want more great guests. If you want to come on, let's have a conversation about it. Or if you know a great town acquisition leader, please uh, make the introduction for us. And again, we have some really exciting stuff coming up on the show. I'm going to be releasing some some big news soon on some additional segments and some experts that are going to be coming on an ongoing basis. And these are going to be people that you want to hear from. These are people that are going to be able to provide incredible insights to you uh, that because of their very unique vantage point within the talent landscape for tech. So hopefully I'll have more news for you on that uh, in the next month or so. But until next time, I hope everyone has a great week ahead. And we'll talk to you real soon. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to the Breakthrough Hiring Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode and gained a lot of valuable insights to help guide your talent strategy. I also want to say thank you to my team at Secure Vision for making the show possible. Secure Vision is the number one embedded recruitment provider, and we are a three-time category leader on G2. Secure Vision partners with over 150 companies to provide on-demand recruiters who specialize in either tech, revenue, or GNA. For more information, you can visit securevision.io. For more content, you can follow me on LinkedIn at James Mackey or on Twitter at James Mackey DMV. We've dropped links in the description. If you want to be on our show or have any topics you'd like for us to cover, reach out at breakthroughhiring.io. We really appreciate your support with reviews on Apple Podcasts. And lastly, make sure to tune in every Tuesday and Thursday for a new episode. See you next time.